Hello, welcome to the Oklatopia podcast. This is your host, Lucas Collins, and today I'm excited to have with me in the studio libertarian candidate for governor of Oklahoma, Chris Powell. Chris, welcome. Glad to be here. Appreciate you uh, being willing to come on the show, and uh, yeah, I just thought I wanted to get to know you better, get to know what makes you tick, what what your goals are, what your stances are on things, and uh, maybe this would be a good avenue for other people to be introduced to you as well. So appreciate you coming on the show. I'm delighted to be here. Cool. So um, I thought we'd start um, with, I guess, kind of your maybe just a brief background on, you know, have you always been a libertarian or uh, you are running in, on the libertarian ticket, right? Yeah, I've and been, and then uh, you had one other previous candidacy as a libertarian. Well, last year I ran for Oklahoma County Clerk. Okay, and that turned out really well. Uh, I got uh, eighty nine thousand votes, uh, which that's for Oklahoma County only, compared mm-hmm. to Gary Johnson got a little over eighty two thousand statewide. Okay, uh, that was. Uh, but 36% was my percentage, so I was very happy about that, uh, which I, mean, I cherry-picked that a little bit because I looked for a race where there would be just two candidates. Right, okay. Uh, and there are those who will say that a lot of those votes that I got were uh, Democrats who didn't have a Democrat to vote for. Right. The other guy was Republican. Uh, and that's, you know, that's certainly true, but that's, uh, probably 85,000 people who never voted for a libertarian before right? and would never vote for a libertarian, except that they had that put before them mm-hmm. where they had to choose, do I want to vote for a Republican, a libertarian or nobody at all? So, and once you get somebody to vote vote for a libertarian once, they're a lot more likely to do it a second time. Right. And that's how progress is made. Yeah, absolutely. So was libertarianism, is it something that's recent for you, or is it an ideological position you've held for a long time? I've been involved with the party since uh, uh, 2000. Okay. Uh, I was working for the state regents for higher education at that time, uh, collecting on defaulted student loans. Wow, that's, that's got to be an interesting uh, <laughs> occupation. It was uh, it was interesting. Uh, the The premise that I was sold on when I was hired to do that uh, was that this was a self supporting program that we were collecting on these uh, defaulted loans, and that money coming in paid for what we did. Uh-huh. Well, I, if the subsidies that are the loans aren't in place in the first place, and that is not what we were funding, that you know that was funded directly from tax dollars, uh, then what we were able to bring in on the back end wouldn't exist in the first place. So that really wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And of course, the longer I was there, the more I saw, you know, I talked to him every day, all these people who had... Uh, taken out these loans and couldn't pay them back and had degrees that they couldn't find the employment that they wanted or they weren't able to get their degree or they were had gone to some sort of technical or business school and had 
whatever certification they might have gotten was garbage. Mm. And that was, I mean, I was already pretty much a small government. Uh, you know, at that time, considered myself a you know conservative, right? Um, because those were the limited government, individual liberty people that I knew of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the more that I saw this with this government program and other things in my life that I'd seen, I saw how getting government involved in things to start with to encourage or coerce people to go about things a certain way, the more I saw that it, the drawbacks of it, uh, and you know, I knew that this, the way that we were doing things was not working, that mm-hmm. all of this government control was not productive and helpful. And then I came across Harry Brown. Okay. And, uh, you know, I was sold. I yeah. found, I found where I was supposed to be. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I I came to libertarianism through the Ron Paul campaign in 2008, so I kind of missed the Harry Brown period. But I listened to a lot of anti-war radio with Scott Horton, and he was a huge Harry Brown fan. And so I did hear about him somewhat uh, from that perspective, but I never really got to interact with him, or I haven't really discovered, you know, got dug into his writings. So. He ran for president in 2000, right? Yes. He had, okay. uh, like Gary Johnson, he, uh, Harry Brown ran in 96 and 2000. Okay. Uh, he didn't have the success that Johnson did. Though. Right. But probably stronger on the ideological front. He was, he was pretty good. Uh, he was more of, he had come from a background where he had not been political at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, before he came across libertarianism himself, uh, he had been in financial management and investments, uh, those kind of, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and wasn't a voter, wasn't a voter at all. And then he came across libertarianism, and he had some personal resources with his, uh, had been very successful with investments and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So that's how he got to where he was, and he came across he came across with more of a salesmanship approach in a lot of ways, right? Uh, which I I got some influence from that. I've been mm. I've been in sales, and I think that's what we need to do. Is right. we've got a great product, we just need to sell it. Right. Well, I think you know America before you know September 11, two thousand one was a very different place, and the distinctives of libertarianism as opposed to the mainstream political culture was probably a different set of issues than it has been since then. Um, so you know it's a very different uh very different world that Ron Paul uh, Ron Paul's campaign existed within as opposed to those campaigns I'm sure. Uh, his presidential campaigns in 08 and 2012 that's certainly a different context. There mm-hmm. was uh you know after 2011 there was a lot more of the especially early on there was a lot more of the police state mentality, right. give up your liberty for a little security mm-hmm. uh, trade-off, which right. where you get neither. And sure. uh, with Harry Brown, there was a lot more on, um, you know, the social issues and, and some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Ron Paul had was in Congress uh, 
as right as a, ha- having already run as a, the libertarian presidential candidate in 1988 he went back to congress as a republican after that mm-hmm. in the early 90s so right. yeah he it's not as though that time period was something that uh, he did not exist in well, at all yeah absolutely but Ron Paul's strength really, I mean, obviously on the economic front, but you know, I, where I really felt it was on the foreign policy front where he was just really strong. And I think that was, that was really the key distinctive that drove his, his popularity in, in both campaigns. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. So, so at its core, how would, what does libertarianism mean to you? How would you define it? like really at its core fundamental level? It's about individual liberty. It's about all of your rights all the time and not, uh, I think Jeffrey Tucker is, uh, Jeffrey Tucker's written about libertarian brutalism mm-hmm. where, you know, the idea that I can swing my fist just as far as your nose. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, no, it's not about liberty so that I can do this whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. It's about liberty so all of these other people can choose and determine for themselves how their lives should be, and uh, we can we open up so many possibilities for people to make the world a better place when we stop trying to tell them that they have to do it the way that some politician thinks is the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, those people at Twenty Third and Lincoln, those people up in Washington D.C., they think they know what everybody's supposed to be doing, but nobody can know that. And you have to let people be free to live their own lives because that's the way that we're going to advance as a civilization. Mm -hmm. So do you find yourself approaching libertarianism more from kind of the, the natural law, natural rights kind of moral angle or more from the, the utilitarian consequentialist angle? It's a little bit of both. Yeah. I think that it is both morally right for people to have individual liberty, and I think that serves us better as well. I think we are both uh, better people and more prosperous. Right. At the same time, I don't. I don't know that one is is more important than the other. Mm-hmm. Was your uh, your race for county clerk was that the first time that you had pursued uh, public office? No, actually, uh, in two thousand, I ran for state legislature in House District one hundred. Uh, and um, got just a little under 15% okay. in that race. Uh, as a libertarian, that was the last time before 2016 that we were on the ballot in Oklahoma. Okay. And then in 2002, I ran for uh, city council in Bethany, and I got, I think it was uh, 33 34% in that race. Of course, that was nonpartisan, mm-hmm. but it was, it was well known that I was a libertarian. And that was an interesting race. We had, there were four seats on the city council that were up. And there were four of us, one in each ward, who were sort of the uh, uh, insurgents right. uh, against the uh, established power structure. Uh-huh. And out of the four of us, uh, I had the highest percentage. So I was I was pretty pleased with that. And the other three were not libertarians. They mm-hmm. were you know, just other Bethany residents. Most of them were, uh, uh, I think just about all of them were Republicans, uh, in which it's a very Republican yeah. area out right. there. So I was pretty pleased with that. Uh, but 
a lot of that was that, uh, you know, I really went out and beat the bushes and knocked on doors and all that stuff. Right. Uh, which translates to votes. Yeah. So, so from that time, from 2002 to your run last year in 2016, uh, were there, were you doing other things or were you kind of focusing on real life outside of politics? <laughs> well, I, uh, I became state chair in, I can't remember, it was 2002, 2003, and uh, was state chair for a couple of years. And then after that, I did kind of get focused on real life with a number of other things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we weren't, we weren't going to be able to get on the ballot until the national party was in a position right. to get us back on the ballot. Right. Uh, which was disheartening and um the there were some people who some uh, some party members who ran as independents and ran for some other nonpartisan races right but it's real hard to get any traction when you don't have that brand mm -hmm. when you don't have that to sell you know it, it's, you don't have the imprimatur yeah. of officially existing <laughs> yeah so it's it's hard to do a lot of good in that situation um I ran after I ran for city council in the fall. I ran uh, as an independent for that same state house seat uh -huh. as an independent because we weren't on the ballot, and I got twenty five percent. But it was it's not the same waving the flag without that party label. Right, right. Um, so were you aware of kind of the? I'm sure you're aware of the Ron Paul movement to some extent. With, you know, the kind of that insurgency that was going on within the Republican Party really from 2007 on through 2012 over that, that two campaign period. Um, were you ever tempted to, to get involved or, or was it was it more separated because it was in the GOP and kind of outside of your sphere? Well, interestingly enough, I got involved with... Um uh, about 2006 or so, I got involved with an outfit called Freedom Works. Mm -hmm. uh, Dick Army was right. uh, behind that. And they sent a bunch of us to Washington to lobby for some stuff, uh, you know, economic stuff that mm -hmm. they, uh, they had going on. And while I was there, I actually went and visited Ron Paul's office. Mm -hmm. uh, and... You know, I just dropping in unannounced, mm -hmm. just wanted to be in Ron Paul's office for a minute. Right. And they said, Would you like to see him? And I said, Sure. <laughs> so uh, they ushered me back and he quizzed me about what I was doing with Freedom Works and talked to me for a few minutes and gave me a uh, uh, pocket constitution uh -huh. like, he, like he does. Right. Uh, which, you know, I, I, I was nobody. Uh, and he was. Somebody showed up and he was willing to come, let him come in and talk for a few minutes. Uh, and that was really, uh, I was really impressed by that. But at the same time, I knew that the Republican Party was not where I needed to be. And I did not think, I never was optimistic that uh, Ron Paul could uh, win the Republican nomination or really change hearts and minds to a great degree within the GOP. Uh, the people that 
agreed with him, already agreed with him, and the people that the rest of them were never going to. So I, uh, I didn't see a lot of traction with that hmm. uh, to be gained, and I, in particular, I didn't see a lot of uh, traction to that to be gained within the state of Oklahoma. And I also wasn't, you know, I, uh, I wound up going to Washington because FreedomWorks sent me. I, mm-hmm. I'm not somebody who goes, uh, you know, uh, to national conventions and things like that. That's not right. really, I'm more interested in local stuff. In fact, you know, I'm running for governor because uh, we need to, uh, we really need a strong campaign. We really need to make sure that we get ballot access going forward. Uh, and we've never done this before. Uh, I, you know, there's there's three candidates, uh, three people within the Libertarian Party who have gotten more than thirty percent in a in a race, and two of them are me. Mm. So I kind of feel obligated to to carry the mantle and and put myself out there as someone who can who can do that. But I'm more interested in the local stuff. Uh, like I said, um, like we were talking. Uh, before we start here about the Ed Grimes race, mm-hmm. uh, he's an independent runner for county sheriff. I went out and worked my precincts, uh, my precinct and the neighboring one, and I, you know, we I was able to look at the results uh, this evening before I came over, and it looks like I added about ten percent to his bottom line by working mm. right there in my neighborhood. Right. If I want to show that that's effective. Mm-hmm. And I want other people to do that. Yeah. Uh, and there's a certain amount of I I'm not overly concerned if somebody is an ideologically pure libertarian or right. even if they support another party. If we create a culture in this state where people are going around and talking to each other mm-hmm. and really doing politics right, really doing it you know the old-fashioned way where you're wearing out shoe leather. I think we can we can all move in a more positive direction. Right. Um, I want it more libertarians than anybody else to be doing that, but I want people to get involved, no matter where they are ideologically, and not just show up for big meetings and act you know where some politician acts like they're somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, don't do that. But when there's election, pick a side and go out and talk to your neighbors. The more we get to know each other, the better off we'll be. Right. I, it is really interesting to be a part of both Ron Paul campaigns and see the way in which there's there's a certain value in a high profile campaign in that it it brings the ideas up in the public consciousness. It brings you know the debate over over liberty you know versus government intervention to the public consciousness, and it also motivates a lot of action. That you don't get otherwise, and so um, it, it was interesting to be a part of that. And his campaign brought so many people to libertarianism, me and my wife included, and so and everyone, the hundreds of people who are involved in the campaign in Oklahoma, um, who would not, almost guaranteed, not be libertarians without him, you know, um, and so. And then it's been interesting after his campaigns to immediately see the split between the people who 
supported him more because he was a constitutionalist, not because he was a libertarian. And then the people who really went all the way and really ideologically converted, and then that split kind of happened. And so then you've that energy went into the Gary Johnson campaigns somewhat. It was enough to get the Libertarian Party then ballot access. I mean, I would argue that without Ron Paul, the Libertarian Party would not be on the ballot in Oklahoma today. Well, I certainly wouldn't uh, argue against that, and I don't want to say that there's any, there was anything wrong with, with working for Ron Paul. I would have been happy to see him have... I was happy with the success that he had, and I would have been happy to see him have more success. Uh, it just wasn't where I fit. Sure. Uh, and I think that's something that... Uh, there are individuals in all ideological stripes mm-hmm. who think that they know what everybody else should be doing. And it's, we should have less of that than anybody else. We're right. the, uh, there's, there's lots of paths to freedom. Uh, and, you know, for everybody who, who got out and worked for Ron Paul, you good mm-hmm. on you. Right. I'm glad you did it. It just wasn't really a fit for me. And I, I mean, I'm totally 100% on board with that. I, I totally agree with you because I've been involved at basically zero level ever since 2012. I I put my heart and soul into that one and I was just kind of done. And then I've just, I've had other things to focus on. I've had a job. I've got, my kids are getting older and uh, taking, you know, more time and attention. And I started a business on the side. And so like there are, there are other ways to pursue freedom than just through political means for sure. totally on board with that so so it sounds like your primary what what are your primary goals in running for governor let me ask that i want to present a option to the vast majority of oklahoma voters that they've never seen before Mm. and it's important if they're going to consider that option for it to be considered, for it to appear credible, uh, for the candidate to look like somebody that they want to vote for, to sound like somebody that they want to vote for, to be taken seriously, uh, and I think I'm the best candidate to do that. Uh, I also want to sell to my fellow libertarians the mm-hmm. idea that doing the work mm-hmm. is that's how we're going to get ahead. It's not just electoral success is not just going to fall from the sky. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a fight every inch of the way. Uh, Some people don't like that fight. Some people don't want to go knock on doors and talk to strangers. Some people don't want to uh, work a booth somewhere and that's fine. Uh, You know, it, it, not everybody can do that, but the people who can and the people who want to move the ball forward, you got to go out and talk to people. Mm-hmm. And if you're not doing that, uh, if you're not giving money to candidates, uh, if you're not telling people that you know that, hey, you need to vote for this guy, then that's why we're not getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. Going to meetings where we argue with each other or arguing with each other on social media is not productive. Uh, it's Everybody wants to do that. Mm-hmm. Everybody, uh, you know, uh, as my friend Tom Laurent, uh, 
used to say, if you put two libertarians in a room, you'll get at least three opinions. Right. So uh, it, we're all inclined to do that. But the, the, the job of politics is to go out and sell to other people, not right. argue with each other. So you talked about how you, your real kind of heart is for the local, the local political scene. So what do you feel like are the most important issues at the local level? Because it's, I find often it's very, it's easier or it's more apparent what the distinctives are between libertarians and the mainstream political establishment on a national level. You know, foreign policy, you know, we're just diametrically opposed to what they're doing overseas. When it comes to tax policy, when it comes to the Fed, when it comes to uh, the drug war, the federal drug war. Like there are so many very stark differences that a libertarian can take. And it starts maybe being a little less obvious the the closer you get to the local level because the the government at the state level is not quite as much of a big, bad, you know, killing machine or regulatory machine or taxing machine at the level of the federal government, it almost seems relatively benign. So how does, how does a libertarian stand apart at the state level or at the local level and send a distinctive message that people can latch onto and be like, that person is fundamentally different from the mainstream political establishment? I don't think it's that hard. Okay. Uh, it's, you know, you go back to individual liberty and what advances that. Uh, one of the things that we have a lot of at uh, our local and state government is economic development stuff that is basically crony capitalism mm -hmm. or, you know, picking winners and losers. Right. Uh, like TIF districts. Mm -hmm. You know, TIF districts, the, the idea of that is that the taxation that is accumulated in a particular area that is determined by the uh, local government just goes back into supporting businesses within that district. And it's uh, there's no tax increase. It sounds like almost a way to create free money for, for economic development. The problem is it's not free money. That those funds would have gone to schools. They would have gone to uh, municipal services for the community as a whole. Instead, it's going to support these few businesses. And the supposed economic development that uh, is claimed to happen that is going to raise the tax base overall to pay for it doesn't really materialize because it's not creating new economic development. It's stealing it from somewhere else. Uh, I'm sure we've all seen... Uh, some uh, entity where, well, I mean, it happens with state governments all the time. So politicians trot out and say, we've given this subsidy to Boeing or whomever so that they bring these jobs here. Well, we didn't create new jobs. We just stole them from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And those people over there are trying to steal jobs from us. Mm -hmm. And when we're all trying to steal from each other, nobody's becoming more prosperous. I think it's interesting because it... it uh relates directly to Bastiat's uh, thoughts on the seen and the unseen, where 
it is difficult because the politician, the interventionist, can point to a specific building or a specific district or you know a business and say, "Look how great this is." Because you do you you go downtown, you go to a lot of the urban districts like Automobile Alley, the Plaza District, Uptown Twenty Third, these places that have really the development has been dependent on the TIF financing, the tax increment financing. I mean, that's that's how those deals are profitable for the developers. I, I know quite a few of them personally. And, um, and I have to admit, I really enjoy going to those places and I enjoy those businesses and it's easy to see that. But what you're pointing out is we don't see all the diverse myriad of things that aren't happening in order to allow those funds to go there. There's, there's always a trade, but they're more diffuse. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not going to see any single project that equals that project. It's coming bits and pieces from many other areas. And I think it's interesting that a lot of these same people who support the tax, who support the development going on in the urban core that's really dependent on the TIF financing um, are also the ones clamoring for all the reduced services, you know, who are making a big, really big fuss about the education funding shortfall, uh, not enough funding for the streets and other various quote unquote core services. Well, that's another unseen effect is that when you create that TIF district and all that tax money is going to support uh, the crony capitalism in that district, that means less money for schools. And who makes that up? Well, the state government makes that up through its funding through the Board of Equalization. So a TIF district here, everybody else in the state people in Tulsa area, people in the Panhandle, people who never come to Oklahoma City, they're helping support that TIF district because now they're paying more, they're they're getting more from state government for their local schools because we're not, that school has to make up the difference that went to the TIF, dist- TIF district money. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there's things like that. There's other things like, um, you know, you get into some of the... Uh, uh, some of the social issues with with some of these local issues, uh, you know, there's communities that they have always lived a certain way with a certain cultural outlook, and they want to encode some of that in law. And it's you know those things are pretty easy to uh, to fight. Uh, in Bethany, back when I ran for city council, uh, not long before that, there was a deal where the city wanted to uh, increase its uh, the police authority to pull people over for not wearing seatbelts. Hmm. And a lot of it was, uh, you know, it was targeting uh, mostly minority community in part of that city, uh, which I understand why the why the police department wanted that. Uh, hmm. They're fighting the drug war. Right. You know, and, and that would give them another tool to do that. Uh, of course, I'm against prohibition, but it also would have fallen much more on that minority community than on the people 
uh, in the north half of town like myself, I was never going to get pulled over for that. Right. Uh, so that's that's an easy thing if you're for individual liberty and equality before the law. That's an easy thing to fight. Right. Uh, if you look around, uh, it's not hard to find issues where your local governments are pushing people around because there's people in power that want to want everybody to do things and live their lives the way that they think they should. So in regard to your run for governor, what are the top one, two maybe three issues that that you that you're talking about that set you apart from the Republican or the Democrat candidate. Well, there's criminal justice reform uh, which is coming whether you want it or not regardless of what your views are. Just from a financial perspective it's going to be necessary. Is that kind of what you're saying? Uh, if financial perspective, uh, the political outlook, everybody's talking about it. There's a lot of push behind it. And we can have a, a situation. You got the people who want to keep everybody locked up, and mm -hmm. they're fighting to keep things the way they are. You got uh, these other people who want to let everybody out. And if there's not any mediation between the two, eventually it's going to be let everybody out. Well, there's some people that should be that are a danger to others, can't stop harming others, and they should be in jail. Uh, we need to really look at who we keep in and who we let out uh, and really study that issue and get better at it so that we can use that prison space, that expensive prison space, in a more efficient and uh, manner to keep the right people in and let some of these other people out who are not a danger to others. So how, how do you do that specifically? Um, I mean, as, as a fellow libertarian you understand how you know government agencies are incredibly incompetent or when to the extent that they're competent they're co they're competent at doing bad things or you know to to people so you know governments are really good at killing people and arresting people and beating people up and so forth but when it comes to like uh faithfully adjudicating and accurately deciding who should or should not be in prison you know, I have a hard time, you know, trusting that to some blue ribbon council um, that's not swayed by some sort of special interest group one way or the other. You know, besides just your personal character as a libertarian being the governor, what do I have to go on that, that I mean, what specifically, how would you, I don't know, govern that process to ensure that it was done well? That's a tough question. I mean, there's no, I don't think there's a blueprint to do that because in large measure, because you have uh, the two, you wind up with the two sides of the issue, mm -hmm. the lock them up versus let everybody out. And they don't talk to each other uh, except to accuse each other of things. And it's like that with so many other issues. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's going to take uh, a lot of, study of who you know where does recidivism come from uh it's also going to take looking at some of these resources that um you know we had a big move uh decades ago to reduce the number of people in mental institutions mm -hmm. and for good reason those uh, people were in those places and they were terrible places to be uh, and they treated people horribly. So we got rid of most of those. 
uh, and now the, but we didn't create anything, neither government nor communities create anything to do with a lot, a lot of those people. And now a lot of those people are in the prison system because mm-hmm. they have mental issues and can't control their behavior. Uh, we need to get better, not just with what government decides to do, but we also need to get better with what communities do, mm-hmm. what what individuals do outside of of government. Uh, it's it's huge. It's massive. I mean, it's going to take. Right. We will not perfect that in my lifetime. I don't believe. Well, I mean, it seems like you're going to have probably the Republican and the Democrat gubernatorial candidates saying things that are pretty similar to, to what you're saying that neither of them are going to literally say, let everybody out. And probably maybe the Republican will say, keep them all locked up. It depends on who we get, but you know, if it's Todd lamb, he's probably going to be a little more middle of the road, moderate on sure. it. So, so well, how do you set yourself apart on the issue? What's your, distinctive i I mean it it seems sorry i'll I'll let you answer just a second but it seems to me is is one possible way to address it to simply make fewer things criminalized well that's certainly so fewer people get locked up in the first place yeah the the uh, slam dunk for the libertarian is to is to go after prohibition yeah uh so that's something that uh you can automatically reduce the number of people you're sending into the prison system mm-hmm. by not trying to use prison to treat uh, narcotics usage. Right. So uh, that's you know that's that's easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't say that because that's almost too easy. Libertarians should already know that we're going to say that. Uh, but other stuff like. You know, in 780, when we uh, state question 780, when that was passed, that decriminalized marijuana. Mm-hmm. Uh, but along with that, it changed the dollar figures for what was a felony as far as uh, a lot of property crimes. And uh, I work for the Oklahoma City Police Department, a property room, uh, and I see things come across my desk every day of these property crimes that are now between 500 and a thousand dollars that were felonies that are now misdemeanors. Uh, I have a friend who, uh, he works in the, uh, in drug testing, Hmm. uh, people who've been adjudicated and they have to, uh, you know, they have to provide their samples so that, uh, they can be checked for any narcotics. And, there's a cycle to a lot of that with um, these uh, people who use regularly mm-hmm. and they commit crime to continue to use. These are, they're criminals all the time and they're hurting people. Somebody breaks into your car and takes your stuff, mm-hmm. you, you're harmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe that's a little easier to deal with if you live in certain uh, high-end zip zip codes than it is for somebody who lives in uh, uh, apartments up on Lyrewood or down on uh, you know down in the flats or something like that. But that harms people, and if 
if you, we either need to find a way to break that cycle for those people, or if we can't break that cycle, if they are never going to do anything but steal stuff, go pawn it, go buy their drug of choice, and then once they've gotten their high, go back and steal more stuff. Uh, those people should not be free to get out and do that. Uh, I think there's, if we stop trying to treat a lot of that stuff by prison, that mm. we can find ways to right. break that cycle. Yeah. But if there's not a way to break that cycle, that person doesn't need to be running around loose. Well, it seems to me, and you know, you tell me if you think differently, but it seems to me that decriminalizing a lot of the drug use, number one, by by bringing it into the mainstream economy instead of in the black market, you you're gonna you're gonna increase the quality and decrease the price. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's less likely they're gonna have to go steal something that that they're gonna be driven into poverty mm-hmm. just through their drug habit. Sure. Yeah. You and then and then secondly, they're gonna be far more likely to seek help mm-hmm. because something that has the taboo of illegality just automatically and plus even if you want to give somebody help then you become some sort of accessory mm-hmm. to their criminal behavior not and I'm not talking about their robbery I'm talking about their drug use and so even if you're not technically legally you know liable for that you're still going to sure you're going to there's going to be a greater hesitancy for organizations that would normally be reaching out to help people with various issues to help with that issue because they're a criminal for using that. And you decriminalize that, you think you you really reduce the taboo, You so people are more able. I think you would most likely break most, or have a good chance at breaking most of those cycles of drug use connected to violence. Sure, yeah. Uh, it's absolutely true that if we take a different approach, we're going to reduce the number of people in that uh in that cycle dramatically. Mm. And once we do that, the people that are left over, we can have a better shot of finding different ways to break that cycle in other ways. Uh, exactly as you say. Uh, but there's always going to be some people who, uh, uh, who can, for whatever reason, can't control their behavior. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, about, Narcotics. It can be about uh, oh any number of things. Uh, you know, people get obsessed with uh, going to the casino. They get you know mm-hmm. people have get hung sure. up on sex. You know, right. and certainly we don't need to criminalize that. Right. Uh, but you know, whatever drives people to to do, to harm others, mm-hmm. uh, it's the harming others that's the problem. It's right. not it's not necessarily the activity that they're that they're harming others so that they can do. Mm. Uh, but if they can't be persuaded with all these other things, you know, there's there's not anything else to do about it. I wanted to touch on a, on a couple specific issues and kind of get your thoughts on them. Um, one was civil asset forfeiture, and I'm wondering uh, what there is to do to address that. You know, as as governor or even as a candidate, you know, what kind of policies. Uh, or limits or things can be enacted to address that issue? Well, one of the things about civil asset forfeiture and working where I do, I know a little bit, uh, I have a little bit of a uh, inside take on it. Mm. One of the things about civil asset forfeitures, 
frequently used to seize money. Uh, Cash, people's, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, somebody is supposedly a drug mule, uh, and they don't have the drugs anymore, but they got the money that they got for the drugs. Hmm. Well, usually those people, if it is indeed drug money, will, uh, when it's found in their vehicle, when they're pulled over, uh, they will uh, disclaim any knowledge of it. Well, if they do that, if they say, I don't know where that money came from, because really they don't want to be connected to the mm. to the criminal activity, right. which, again, we'll have a lot less of it if we decriminalize. Sure. Yeah. We uh, should, yeah, we shouldn't be criminal activity in the first place. Yes, yes. Uh, but if they disclaim knowledge of it, well, then it can be taken as found money. They're saying it's not theirs, so the officer can take that and as, as found money. Uh, so it's not as if it's impossible to separate these individuals from cash by any other means than civil than civil asset forfeiture. Uh, it works a little bit differently, and so, there's so, all, all of a sudden there's a lot less incentive to right. just pick people out and and take money from them. So are you saying that we don't need? civil asset forfeiture per se in order right. to accomplish the law enforcement goals that are used to justify civil asset forfeiture. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a process that it makes it uh, much harder for that money to get put right back in the pockets of uh, the agencies that claimed it, mm-hmm. which removes the incentive for uh, some of the bad behavior that we've yeah. seen. Well, that, that definitely is a huge part of it. I mean, the fact that they get to keep a portion of that um, mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's its just obviously a conflict of, an incredible conflict of interest. I mean, these are people who are supposed to uphold the law, uh, not profit from criminal activity themselves directly. And, you know, if somebody says, that's my $10,000, mm-hmm. then there should be a higher barrier right. to take it from them than just, no, we think it's drug money. Right. Uh, which I'm I'm sure some of the officers I know will tell me that there's more to it than that, but essentially, mm-hmm. uh, that's you know that's pr- if they think it's drug money, it's just like uh, that uh, uh, group up in Muskogee that was raising money for uh, oh, right. relief in another country. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are legitimate reasons that people can have a whole bunch of cash on them while they're driving along, right? Uh, and if they say this is mine. It needs to be a very high threshold uh, for it to be taken from them. So are there specific policies that can either be enacted or policies that can be uh, removed, repealed, that would move this along? Well, uh, some of the mes- me- measures that Senator, um, State Senator Kyle Loveless, mm-hmm. the now disgraced mm-hmm. State Senator Kyle Loveless, yes. uh, introduced would have gone a long way to do that. Uh, cr- uh a conviction or, uh, you know, something of that nature to show that this money really was from an illegal activity really should be required. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just had the the ruling for the friendly market case just right. came out today, and that was a unanimous decision by the state Supreme Court that all of that, all of the, quote, evidence that was seized when— uh, the court case came out and there was no conviction. They were found not guilty. Right. This was a head shop in Norman yeah. that has been under uh, extreme persecution from Norman PD. 
yeah. and a prosecutor down there. So I, I think that's a very useful ruling, and because it was unanimous, it's very strong to say that if there's not a crime, you have to give their stuff back. Uh, I don't know how much that will help as far as uh, other civil asset forfeiture cases. Uh, that was kind of a unique unique case down there. But that kind of idea that if you can't uh, get them to plead guilty or convict them in a court, that you have to give their stuff back, uh, is that's uh, really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, will you... Do you plan to make marijuana legalization an explicit part of your campaign? Uh, certainly, uh, state question 788, which mm-hmm. is the medical marijuana question. We want to talk about that a lot. Uh, and I am, I don't know how much, uh, it's hard to decide how, how much farther to go beyond that, uh, because there's so many different, uh, uh, different views on, you know, if you go talking about uh, a lot of different substances, people, that'll push a lot of people away. Uh, but I think we can talk about uh, looking what Colorado and Washington have done mm-hmm. with marijuana legalization. It's a thing that's coming. Uh, and I think that's, that's the approach that uh, is probably most productive uh, is to point out that this is going to happen. Uh, if, in 50 years from now, we'll be looking back on marijuana prohibition the way we look back now on alcohol prohibition. Mm. And, you know, that's the thing that I, when I get to arguing with, uh, with other people about whether marijuana should be legal, I always put it to them. Do you, do you think alcohol should be illegal again? Right. And I can respect the person who says yes. Yeah, that's at least that's, they're consistent. Yes, that's a that's a more consistent position. Uh, but they have to really think about what they uh, that makes forces them to think about what yes. they how they view it. And it's also um, a case where you know they say they you you kind of know that they're saying yes, alcohol should be illegal again because they know that's never going to happen. Right. So, right. Uh, and you can give them that out, that face saving out, but yeah. it makes those wheels turn a little bit. Right. This kind of brings up, I guess, the question that's, that's always there for libertarians who are, who are running for office in today's world is like, to what extent you are the reasonable marginal difference and to what extent you're the firebrand bomb thrower and be, and this, this trade-off to me, I mean, it's it's always kind of a tension, and it depends on a lot of different things. But it seems to me, in my my calculus, of course, I'm I'm not personally running for can- candidacy right now, so I, you know, maybe my opinion would alter a little bit under that scenario. Is that we're such a small minority already? The likelihood of winning is so low. The real purpose of the activity in the first place of, of running for office is to gain as the biggest platform possible to talk about Liberty to people, to try to to get people to understand the ideas, influence the cultural conversation, you know, lay the groundwork for greater freedom in the future. And so to me, it seems like almost the, almost that, that uh, all publicity is good publicity approach where like the biggest 
crowd possible is better than even if they're going to write you off as crazy, at least they know about you, you know? And to me, Donald Trump's victory in a way is a vindication of that approach because like he not, and part of the reason he won is because, you know, there's a lot of really terrible people out there who actually like identified with all the crazy stuff he was saying. Um, but he was like, you can sure bet everybody knew about him, even when it was, even when everyone thought it was impossible that he was going to win. So anyway, I'm interested to th- get your thoughts on, on that. Maybe you've already given me your thoughts on that, but I just thought I'd share well, my perspective on it. I would say as far as Trump goes, uh, he was already, uh, famous. He was already extremely famous, reality mm. TV star. True. All the wealth, all the tabloid stuff. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew who he was. Uh, he was a story uh, somewhat similar to the way that Kid Rock is a story in mm-hmm. Michigan. Uh, you know, if there's somebody who is one of those people who wants to be a libertarian and be a bit of a bomb thrower and get that attention, you know, then. Good for them. I, I got no problem with that. Mm. Uh, if there's somebody who is not one of those people who is a has their hair on fire, uh, I certainly don't want to dissuade anybody. Uh, that's not the path for me. Mm. Uh, and I think that what I want to do is communicate with people, not yell at people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's you know that's what works uh, for me. And I think that more people doing that, treating you uh, like an individual who your experiences are important, your what you value has value. Uh, it, you can disagree, and that doesn't make you a bad person. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't make me a bad person either. We see it differently. We can talk about that like reasonable people and go from there to uh, see what we because a couple of things one is uh, well my campaign slogan is I believe in you Mm. and that's for everybody Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe in your experiences the way that you see things your story I have that's not my story I don't understand it the way you do I don't see the world through your eyes and the way that you see things has value uh, even if I even if I see it differently, it still has value, uh, and that's you know that's my approach, and that's what works for me. Uh, those people who want to say that's the bad guy, there's the bad guy. I don't think those people are really helping anybody a whole lot. Uh, creating these boogeymen of that we're all supposed to be afraid of. We've got too much fear in the world of things and other people. Now, mm-hmm. I don't want to encourage that at all. Right. A uh, couple couple last questions. Uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. But uh, you've probably seen Dax Eubanks 4M test. Are you familiar with that? I, I don't know if I've okay. seen it. Okay. He's created this. You know, you know Dax, I, yeah, I assume. Yeah. And he's created something of a litmus test for now of the libertarian so it's the four M. So it's uh, marijuana, Mexicans, Muslims, and marriage. 
And so he's basically like, it, it is, it particularly differentiates from the conservatives who, who often align in some way in this state, you know, there are a lot of very limited government, uh, Republicans, but who are major culture warriors still at heart. And so I was just curious if I could get just briefly kind of your thoughts. We, we've talked about marijuana, so we know where you are there, but, uh, what about legislation regarding marriage? I don't think the state should be licensing marriage. Uh, they, it can be recorded after the fact. Uh, they can have, there can be laws saying that you can't marry your sister. Uh, but for the state to give a license, it is saying in your name and my name and everybody else in the state, in our name, you have a license to do this. I don't want to be involved in licensing or you know, putting a stamp of approval on anybody else's marriage. And that's, it's not my business. Uh, and that you, there's a lot of people who don't want to be, uh, put a stamp of approval on a same gender marriage. I would say that I don't really want to put a stamp of my stamp of approval on a marriage between people who have seven other marriages between them already before they got to this point. Mm. I don't want to be involved in that. Right. Uh, that's their business. You know, I hope they're happy, but uh, you know, the state can record that after the fact without being involved on the front end of saying we bless this. Okay. Uh, Muslims. Do you, I mean, there've been efforts to, you know, restrict uh, mosques from being built uh, or to there was the the legislative state legislator passed a law about Sharia law that ended up getting knocked down by the state supreme court. I believe this was a, a few years ago. So your your thoughts on Islam and Sharia and as far as it concerns the law and libertarianism? Well, I'm an equality before the law guy. Uh, the state should not the state should neither know nor care what your religious views are, uh, or your, they really shouldn't know or care much about your, your gender or race, to be honest. Uh, there was a, uh, Trevor Noah of that replaced John Stewart on the daily show talks mm -hmm. about, uh, apartheid in South Africa. After they got rid of that, they went through and on all forms for all kinds of things where they didn't, uh, where it wasn't absolutely necessary they took race off the form. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, he came to this country and then he goes to apply for something at a bank and it asks race. And he's, mm -hmm. you know, it, he was taken aback by it a little bit. It's a great thing for anybody who wants to look it up. You, you should Google that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's the same with religion. Mm -hmm. It's it's not the state's business. Uh, you know, there are people like uh, Dan Fisher, for instance, who, mm -hmm. will, who will disagree with that. But... You know, your faith is is yours, not the state's. Mm. And uh, I've found a number of uh, pastors that I know who agree with me mm -hmm. that a lot of what uh, a lot of the problems with uh, the church community today is that they have ceded authority, they have ceded responsibilities to government. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they need to take those back. Part of taking those back is saying to the state, religion is not your business. Mm -hmm. 
All right. So then Mexicans, when it comes to immigration, borders, uh, immigration restrictions, you know, uh, employers having to monitor, you know, who's legal and who's not legal and, and whatever. What are your thoughts on that subject? Well, I'm running for a state position and we're not a border state. So uh, I don't want to get into a big debate about uh, well, there you know, there are a lot of Congress. but cool. there are a lot of technically illegal workers in in every state. Right, right. Uh, but I mean, in general, as far as an immigration policy, I want a policy where we can actually control our border, and that involves not trying to keep everybody out. That involves a situation where people can come through the door and enter if they're here to be productive and not cause problems. Uh, that's a situation where if we, uh, if we, you know, if we allow people to come through the door, then they don't have to sneak across the desert. And if we find anybody sneaking across through the desert, we know they're up to no good. Uh, it would also mean that if we deport somebody, it would actually mean something. Uh, but that involves letting a lot more people come here. Uh, which, you know, I think is the more moral position regardless, mm -hmm. but it mm -hmm. also allows us to create a border we can control. As far as uh, what state government can do, uh, there's a lot of call in certain quarters to enforce federal immigration law. That's not what state government does. That's not what we should be doing. Uh, if we have issues with that, that we think we need to do something about, then we can go from there. I don't know of any. I live in a very diverse community with a lot of um, Mexicans. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's, I like my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't have a problem. I don't have any problems with my neighbors. They're, mm -hmm. they're great neighbors. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, there's that personally, but uh, we're also not, like I said, we're not going to carry water for the federal government. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that we need to do, in my view, that I talk about a lot is devolve functions back down to state and local government. Mm -hmm. We don't get there by deciding that we're an arm of the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Right. Uh, so, you know, this, this stuff about uh, the sanctuary city stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in saying that we're going to be a sanctuary state, but I'm not interested in enforcing a bunch of federal laws for much of anything that, you know, we'll enforce our state laws as we think we need to. Mm -hmm. The federal government can do whatever they do, and we don't work for them. We work for the people of Oklahoma. Yeah. Uh, kind of one last question, or well, not one main last question. You, you've got a lot of experience running local campaigns, uh, which really, I mean, there's so much evidence that it's all about knocking on doors. It's all about talking with people. Basically, whoever knocks on doors the most, you know, wins, usually. It has a very direct correlation to your performance. Because uh, most of the time, the name recognition is not that high anyway. It's not really media involved on a, you know, a house district race or something like that. So, do you? What's your plan of attack on scaling that up to a, to the state level? Well, uh, we're trying to get out to different communities. Uh, the um, we've got a deal in Grove coming up that uh, the Northeast Oklahoma County Libertarian Party 
uh, is promoting. So I'm going to go up there. I've gone up to Tulsa. I've got a deal in Shawnee coming up next month, uh, setting up events where you can go out into these different communities and talk to people. Social media helps a lot with that. Uh, you can do a lot on social media as far as reaching out to people that you otherwise can't reach. Uh, and then there's trying to get the, um, the media attention that you can get. Mm -hmm. I've been pretty happy with, uh, with what we've been able to do with that. I've been in the, uh, the Edmund paper. I've been in the, uh, uh, Miami news record, uh, been in the antlers paper, uh, I was uh, got a little bit in the Stillwater News Press. Uh, I've been in the Black Chronicle. Uh, there's, uh, I was on Channel Five the other day. Mm -hmm. uh, being able to reach out to these organizations, these media outlets, is uh, get your message out to people who otherwise wouldn't see it if you're only doing your events and things like that. So. Uh, we need to press that as much as we can. Uh, I'm going to continue doing that. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to to reach out to everybody in the state. Uh, it's particularly hard when uh, we're not really going to be able to talk a whole lot directly to you can vote for us until after the primary. Uh, we, so, so are you? So do you find yourself? in this stage, focusing more on the Libertarian Party in the primary race, or are you kind of already starting trying to broaden your message as well to the general electorate? Well, there's going to have to be some focus on uh, the people who can vote in the primary. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, you know, it, is, to win it, the primary. Is it going to be closed primary? Or we haven't I, decided yet? They have not decided okay. yet. Uh, but if, we, if we're not reaching out to let the entire electorate know we exist now, uh, it's... You need I the think, biggest head start possible. Yeah. yeah I totally uh, get that. We have, and this is something that I don't know that anybody's really realized yet, They, the past session of the legislature, uh, they passed this uh, deal where independent presidential candidates can get on the ballot by paying a fee. It's a crazy fee per electorate. Uh, it adds up to like $35,000, which is nuts. But that's cheaper than $100,000 yeah, for a petition drive. Yeah, yeah. So if we don't retain ballot access, there's a good chance that we won't be back on as a party right, for right. a long time. Uh, so we've got to start now reaching out and letting people know that we exist and we're going to be an option on next November's ballot. And we need to keep up that, uh, you know, the more times they see you, the more credibility you have. Yeah. So what's the threshold for the gubernatorial race? Like we're at two and a half percent for the presidential race in order to maintain it's ballot same. access. So it's the same two and a half percent in order to carry it forward another two years. Yeah. So every two years is the litmus test. Right. Okay. Uh, and it is keyed on just the presidential and gubernatorial races. Right. Hopefully uh, we can get, uh, I know there's been some discussion of it. Uh, there was something introduced last session that didn't get out of committee. Uh, but if we could key it to uh, any statewide race mm -hmm. uh, or if we could, if it could last for four years, mm -hmm. I know uh, 
Zachary Knight has uh, been working on that, uh, then that would certainly that would certainly help the cause. Right. Uh, but right now we're looking at we got to get two and a half percent in the gubernatorial race, and mm-hmm. if we don't, we're dead in the water. And I've been dead in the water, and it's no fun. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, if people want to find out more about your campaign, want to get involved, what, what, what should they do? Well, I'm on Facebook, uh, Chris Powell for Governor. Uh, got a website, www.powellforgovernor.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, you can follow along on any of those. Uh, you can go to the website and donate some money, and that will give us the means to get our message out even more. Uh, so... Yeah, every bit of support we can get now, mm-hmm. uh, it's almost as if $50 now is worth more than $500 on October 31st, because mm-hmm. by October 31st, you can't do anything with it. Okay. Except maybe pay your debts if you got debts. Right. So uh, what else are you needing volunteer-wise? Is is our donations really the most important thing at this early stage, or are you needing you know, bodies on the phone or knocking on doors there's too early for that at this point it's really money yeah. and uh the social media stuff mm-hmm. if you're on facebook uh, and you can share whatever i post mm-hmm. you know or something about me or the libertarian party with some of your friends uh you know and, and it doesn't have to be this is the libertarian party please go check them out and join mm-hmm. it can be it could I try to put out content regularly, mm-hmm. and I think uh, that that allows you to say, "Oh, here's something that I like that my friend Bob will like, mm-hmm. and I'll share it with him." Right. Uh, you don't have to, you know, somebody who is a diehard drug warrior. Maybe you don't share the stuff about <laughs> ending ending marijuana prohibition with them. Uh, but if you got somebody that's been affected by uh, by something like that. Uh, I've got some good friends, uh, Amy and Jason Hiltzbrand, their son, Austin, uh, has Dravet syndrome. And he was, uh, he was on a cornucopia of pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. here. He was going to die. Hmm. Uh, it was just a matter of time. They went to Colorado. They are medical refugees to Colorado mm-hmm. from Oklahoma to be able to use cannabis oil and he is off of all the pharmaceuticals and thriving now. Mm, that's incredible. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's a story that you can share, uh, you know, and I post stuff about mm-hmm. that every once in so often because it's such a great story. Yeah. Uh, and it's so powerful as far as bringing that message back here. Right. Uh, you know, that's a that's something that you, that you can share that is not about uh, – Bastier was brilliant, or uh, Mises explained this right, already. Right, It's about here are some people that are like you yes. that have had this experience. Right. Uh, so you can humanize it. Yeah, when it, when it comes to most folks, the anecdotal trumps the abstract every time. Sure. So, well, I think there are a lot of people who are looking for an alternative to the two major parties. I think there's a, even among people, who are diehard GOP or diehard Democrat, there's a lot of disillusionment with their party establishments. And they're eager to find an alternative. So, you know, I think that's really where the Libertarian Party uh, is positioned well to pick up those disaffected voters from both parties. 
So I wish you the best of luck and uh, encourage people to go check out Chris Powell for governor. And I appreciate you coming on the show. I am uh, glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. All right, folks, if you want to comment or ask any questions, you can you can uh, contact the show at oklatopia at gmail.com or on Facebook. There it is. I wonder where that music is going to, outro music going to come from. So thanks for listening. See you later.